to the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast, where we feature unscripted interviews with graduates of the United States Military Academy Class of 1991. The Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast with your host, Jamie Schleck, starts now. This is good. So, Brad, welcome to the Old Grad Podcast. Welcome to episode number 30. It's hard to believe I've been doing this now. It's coming up on two years. Uh, be two years this summer. It's not, not quite two years. And so I know, Brad, you've been kind of a, a periodic listener to the Old Grab Podcast. And so uh, welcome, first of all. Welcome. How was your weekend? It was good. Thanks for, uh, yeah, it's really cool that you asked me. I really appreciate it. Uh, I worked Friday night and rested up Saturday in Kansas City. And then I drove back uh this morning to my main base here in Topeka with my wife and daughter so so far so good yeah so so give me the situation so you're living in Kansas you're you're a medical doctor you're an emergency room physician by the way I asked you to be on this podcast weeks and weeks and weeks ago before this imminent uh uh national uh crisis that we have with the uh coronavirus but um it just was good, good timing so so Give me the situation, you know, where do you live? What do you do for a living? Uh, all that kind of stuff. So I work at, in Kansas City at one of the level, there's three big trauma centers in Kansas City and I work at, at one of them um, doing trauma, obviously an emergency general surgery. So the appendectomies, the, you know, bowel cases, those kinds of things. Um, and so that job requires that I, uh, we have backup call and I have to live within 15 minutes for backup. My wife has a periodontic practice here in Topeka, so really the only option was to, you know, to get a house there. We joke that it's our second house. Um, it's not a vacation home. So when I'm working there, I'm in Kansas City, and when she can come up to Kansas City, she does. And when I'm not working in Kansas City, I come, I come back here to Topeka. How far is, how far is the drive? How far do you got to go in between? It's about fifty something miles. It's about an hour as the crow flies. It's, it's not bad. It's all interstate. But it's just enough so that you need to be close to your, your where, where you got to be, right? So what yep. are the hours like? Do you work like 12 hours on, 12 hours off? Like what's, the, what's the rotation like? So one of the reasons I took this job, um, to answer your question directly, we do about 15 shifts a month that are um, 12 hours. And so two-thirds of those shifts, so 10 out of the 15, will be the day shift, so 7A to 7P. And then obviously the other uh, third is, is the night shift. Um, one of the reasons I took this job is my last job that I was here in Topeka for nine years, the call was just brutal. It was 24 hours, um, and it was all weekend. And during the weeks you, you took your own calls and it was just too much. So hour wise, um, it's taken a little bit of shift in mentality, but this shift, uh, it's better. Cause you know, when you go home, you go home and if you're not back up, you turn your phone off and have a drink. So how do you like the uh, midnight shifts? I mean, the 7, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift. That must be a pretty busy one, huh? You know, it, it is. And so the stuff that you would traditionally think, you know, a lot of the, although we have a lot of stabbings and gunshots during the day, the um, I actually kind of like the night shift. I'm kind of a night owl. Um, the only downside is that there's less people on our team at night. During the day, we have uh, two surgeons on uh, and a couple mid-level providers. And at night, well, we used to have residents, but we sent them back to their home base with all this pandemic. So it's just at night, it's just the surgeon and, uh, uh, you know, a nurse practitioner. So it can get busy. Um, but I kind of like it because, you know, a lot of the BS during the day, people walking around, you don't have the meetings and that kind of stuff. 
So it's just um, it's just trauma at night. And you don't have any residents there to kind of like boss around or have them go get you coffee or anything like that, right? No, we did have <laughs> not residents. Now. And not now, yeah. So about two or three weeks ago, they all got called back to their, they're based out of Denver and they all got called back there. I, I don't know what other residencies are doing, but that program director wanted them back. So it's just the, the surgeons and the nurse practitioners. And and you, you're like the, are you like the, is that the attending? Is that, is that your role? Is that yep. The, yep. That's it. Okay. That is us. And so how does that work? Like, like, so it's you, the nurse practitioner, and you have a surgeon. The surgeon's on call in case you got something where it needs basically emergency surgery situation. And you make the call about whether you get that person dialed in or not into that, into that role. Yeah. So the way that way that it works is we're kind of the team leader and um, whether the nurse practitioners or residents, you know, we go to every single trauma, every single call. And then um, depending on what the patient needs, if the patient needs a, you know, procedure, a laceration sewn up or a chest tube, a lot of times the, the uh, nurse practitioners or PAs will go ahead and do that for us so that we can do other stuff. If we have to go to the operating room, um, we have great mid, uh, mid-levels, you know, nurse practitioners, PAs, but they're, they're fairly young. And so if it's a difficult case in the middle of the night, we'll call our other surgeon in. But they're a great, they're kind of our right-hand, you know, person, help, help out with charting or procedures. And they take all the calls from the floor. Um, so, you know, all the calls for Tylenol and pain medicine. We couldn't do this job without them, quite frankly. I'm sure you must see some pretty tough situations, especially, uh, you know, being in kind of coming from the urban urban centers and stuff. I mean, um, and you've seen, we're going to get to your whole career and everything else. I mean, you've, you've actually been in wartime as well in trauma situations. I mean, so do you find yourself when you're in the thick of it, you know, now as a civilian um, physician doing emergency medicine, do you find yourself kind of like hearkening back to what you've previously done in, in Iraq and other places that have been situ- like real trials of your of your ability? Um, yeah, I, here we have more uh, specialists that can help us out. In Iraq, it was kind of you. And so, for instance, if you had a heart surgeon there, great. If not, as a general surgeon, you were the heart surgeon. Where here we have a, you know, a lot of specialties. I will tell you that now that the pandemic is, is here, it feels a lot different. It feels much more uh, almost Iraqish in that there's this kind of camaraderie and bond, much like in Iraq, where the common theme was everyone's overseas. And um, there is now a much more kind of focused common purpose on all the people that are working together, I'd say. Just got a nice comment from Brent Crabtree. It's nice dogs. Uh, like my meetings now. So I'm actually home now, as you can tell. I'm, I'm not in my office where I typically do these uh, old grad podcasts from because I haven't been, haven't been in my office now since, since March 2nd. I'm, we're, I'm in New Jersey. New Jersey's like the second highest incidence of, uh, of COVID-19 in the country next to New York. And so we've just been trying to do the right thing and stay home. So I'm doing this one from my house. So sorry about the dog in the background. We're all, we're all experiencing this, I think, with... Uh, <laughs> having to stay home and do work, you know? Yeah. If you hear, uh, I got a dog running around and if you hear the dog uh, barking, he's getting, she's getting used to a couple new cats. So you may hear the same here. Cool. Cool. Um, 
So, Brad, I mean, welcome. I'm glad to have you here on the Old Grad Podcast. This is, uh, as I mentioned, this is episode 30. You've, you've heard a few other episodes, I think. Um, and so uh, anything that particularly rang out, rang out to you or spoke to you or that was memorable from the ones that you've listened to that, that, uh, that you, can, you can remember? So it was interesting. I was driving back up today and listening to a couple of them and listened to Becky Canis's, um, you know, obviously my company made for four years. And it's just, uh, it's interesting to hear how, how, what has happened to these people uh, after, after they left. So even though she was in my company for four years and I knew her then, um, it, it's good to hear kind of, you know, how, how things have been going. And I think that at least what I got from them was kind of a common theme. And you and I talked in the pre-call is that uh, the farther that I get out from West Point, it's just kind of more perspective. Um, maybe it's because we're getting old or farther out, but uh, yeah, the, just some kind of common themes there more than specifics. Yeah, I think when well, we were talking about some of the pre-call, you reminded me of something that I had mentioned, which is the fact that I think when we first got out of, out of West Point, got to the Army, we were also anxious to just get the hell out of that place. You don't even think about it. You know, probably for the first 10 years, you're just kind of living your life doing this crazy army thing. Then you get in your thirties and you, you know, a lot of us had started having kids back then. We get married. We're start getting busy with our careers and, and, and if we're in the military. It's obviously a very busy time. It's not really until your mid to late forties that you begin to kind of look back and have the advantage, the, the, I guess the luxury of a little bit of uh, breathing, breathing air, you know, like an opportunity for to look back and, take a breather and start realizing like, Hey, that was a pretty monumentally very formative experience that we all had. We all had it together. And uh, now we look back, start putting the pieces of our life together and say, you know, this really was very impactful for us. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, and we'll go into this, but like you said, after West Point, we all go do our things and we're busy with our careers, be it army or civilian. Um, and for most of us, it takes a few years to get established and, as you look back, you're like, wow, that those things that West Point taught me that I got from West Point, they have been with me, you know, ever since. And yeah, absolutely. You know, I actually had two, I had two calls this week because uh, we're trying, I'm you know, managing a team of people dealing with people, dealing with the front lines of homelessness, dealing with, uh, it's kind of constantly changing, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous uh, world. And was able to reach. I was able to reach a couple um, mentors that got a chance to talk to my team. One was Bob McDonald, uh, formerly the head of the VA, and right. the other one was uh, General Dennis Reimer, who was uh, the um, Secretary of the Army. Both of whom spoke to my executive team and just kind of coached us a little bit in terms of some of the things that we're dealing with and how to deal with this constantly changing set of information and 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 priorities and they both had a couple really uh, poignant things to say, but there's a lot of commonality. And I think it also went right back to right back to their basic experience, which is not much different from ours, which was you know, the, the importance of communicating and leadership, the importance of being authentic, um, the importance of, um, of um, not taking yourself too seriously, knowing when to make a tough decision. And I was really intrigued. General Reimer had a story, which I didn't know, and I don't know how public this is. Um, he was the operations, he was in charge of operations during Desert Storm. And 
so I guess he was a two star and he was in charge of all the all all operations basically. He was the uh I guess like the G three or whatever that would be to to Schwarzkopf. And the eleventh hour, right before they were getting ready to go into to uh to Iraq, there was a report that there might have been a chemical weapon that we were not prepared to handle, that we did not have the appropriate um personal protective equipment or the right types of of cylinders or the you know the protective things but it really was incredible it was just uh like a supposition like like some analyst at the pentagon probably like stitching together three or four different reports it wasn't credible it was 11th hour it was not worth holding things up for and general reimer basically said this is on me if we're wrong this is on me and he basically re recommended to move forward and really didn't make a big deal of that report. I was just shocked at that, the sort of the humility of that, basically saying like, sometimes you got to basically go with your gut. You got to take a big, you got to take a big risk. You know, you, as a leader, you, you're not always going to have all the information that you need to have. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I would echo that. Um, taking responsibility is big. Most of us are, you know, we have some, a lot of us have uh, people underneath us that work for us or with us. And what, even in civilian medicine, what I've seen is, you know, the things that are key. My boss now is, uh, he was an army surgeon actually in this army uh, in Iraq when I was there. He's not a West Pointer, but he is just one of the finest leaders. And during this time of pandemic, he's down there with, you know, with the people. He's down there he actually was online, you know, buying stuff for us out of his own pocket, and he goes to bat for us. And um, and so those leadership skills that at least I got from West Point uh, still stick with us, still stick with me. That's awesome. We should um, we should say hello to some of our classmates that are on the line here. I know we've got yeah. uh, Brent, Brent Crabtree's here. I saw Ingrid Powell was also here. Uh, we've got. Um, Terry Rice is on the line. Alex Porcelli is on the line. Um, I can't. I can't always see who the other. There's 16 people listening. So if I didn't mention your name, I'm sorry. I just can't. I can't pull it all up here. But I can't great to have everybody here. We're doing a, a Zoom Zoom podcast, a Zoom cast straight into uh, Facebook for this uh, old grab podcast tonight. So, um, so Brad. You know, I know that we were trying to schedule this for a Sunday night, and your schedule is one that's kind of like it's predictable, like weeks and weeks and weeks out. And we we were talking about trying to get you on in early March. That wasn't going to work. We said let's go all the way out to 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 April, April fifth, which seems like so far away. At the time that we were scheduling this, we didn't even, I mean, COVID nineteen wasn't even a name. We were there was just you know there was this virus in China that was affecting people, but we had no idea where we would be. And now we are in this uh, global pandemic. Uh, the front line of this is is our healthcare workers. You are right there on the front line. Um, what have you seen? What has what has been most uh, uh, impactful in the last week of your life in terms of dealing with this situation? Um, a couple things stand out. The uh, you know the nurses and the techs that we that work with us are just really the unsung heroes and they kind of remind me of the soldiers i went to iraq you know they don't none of them side you could even make the argument that people in the army signed up for that but these nurses and techs and us 
we never signed up to go into medicine thinking that our lives might be at risk, you know, every single day. And so their dedication is, you know, they don't complain. They just put their stuff on their suits and, and go with, and go in the rooms. Um, and it is, uh, you know, it's changed the way that all of us have practiced in the ER. Now we have, even if it's a low risk patient, we have, um, you know, face protection and, and, and masks. And so, um, it's, it's, it's stressful every time you go down to the emergency room. A couple of times I've been into our um, COVID ICU, and that is really, I've described it as entering kind of like a really bad sci-fi movie, quite frankly, you know, um, those cheesy 60 and 70 movies. Um, you go in there and the stress is just like, it's thick as fog. You know, everyone's in the suits, the doors are all closed. And so the doctors or nurses inside the rooms are communicating by either yelling really, really loudly, or they have uh, markers. They're just writing. These doors are all glass, so they're just writing, you know, backwards to communicate with the people outside the rooms. And then they come out of the rooms in their huge, you know, bunny suits, and a buddy has to wipe them down with, uh, you know, with bleach wipes and that kind of stuff. I, I tell you, the uh, the more that we realize that this is going to go on for a while, uh, I, you know, they talk about moral injury and stress and PTSD. Um, and I think, as I thought about it, it's probably going to be worse than Iraq, because when we went to Iraq, we all knew that it was going to be a set time period. Somebody told me when I was over there, it's like, you can't stop the clock. You know, pretty much you're going home then. And there was time to decompress in Iraq. Both times I was there, there was times when things weren't hot and heavy and you went out and shot hoops with your buddies or played Xbox or, you know, that kind of thing. And it, so it wasn't stressful 24-7. Here, you know, everyone comes to work and it's stressful, no matter whether you're a tech drawn blood or a nurse in the room. Um, and it's stressful for all eight, 10 or 12 hours. And then there's really no time to decompress. You know, beforehand, you could go out to a restaurant or a bar with your buddies or go home and sit in the back patio with your buddies. And, you know, all that time to, to just decompress and have a normal life outside of the hospital is gone. And so I think what we're going to see, what we're seeing now is, you know, intense intensity and then a long long duration of intensity uh you know like in world war ii they had battle fatigue well, you know people the psyche just can't take that much stress forever and so i'm really really the people that i talk to um at the hospital you know no one's sleeping good and i'm sure it's the same for most americans but i was when i was in the icu the other night at like 2 30 in the morning i turned to one of the nurse practitioners i said how, how are you guys doing and they're there from 7p to 7a and the one that responded to me, she said, well, honestly, I go home and I maybe fall asleep at two in the afternoon and wake up at five and come here and do it again. And so I think that once this is kind of peaked and, and gone down, I'm really worried that uh, it won't change for us. America will kind of let its guard down. But it's really concerning that you go there for 12 hours and that intensity and that stressful. And then you go home either to yourself or to your wife and with minimal chance to kind of, you know, just, just breathe and decompress. How about, how about people that got to go home and, and their kids are, are going to school online and they're having to help them do their homework and, and keep that shit going. That's gotta be, that's gotta be just surreal as well. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked to the doctors and nurses at my hospital and online and all these groups. And, you know, some of them are even social distancing within their families. The people that aren't come home from the hospital and strip down in the garage and basically enter the house in their underwear or go, you know, wash up. And then, like you said, 
their next few hours are helping the, the kids and the wife who haven't had a chance to go out either. So, you know, we're all affected by this. That's my plan for my daughter. My daughter is an EMT and she's actually out right now. She's riding around right now. And so she's coming in tonight to the garage, drip down, come right into the, into the shower, got her clothes ready for her. She's, um, she's out there tonight. So, um, that is the front I mean, line right there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think she's, the plan is that they have a plan. She's actually not going to be directly in contact with any patients because uh, she's actually with a with a physician on the who's on the EMT as well. He's going to handle the direct contact. She's going to handle something else, and then I think she might drive or whatever. But um, yeah. So anyway, it's just scary. It's scary here. I mean, we just lost somebody. We lost. I lost uh, somebody I went to high school with. Forty nine year old guy. Um, yeah, it's, it's now what's going on? Why does why does some people really get beat up by this thing and some people not at all? I mean, this guy's 49 years old, otherwise healthy. I played football with him. He wrestled. He was an athlete, and he's gone. Yeah, we're we're really not sure. So obviously, those that are you know young and middle aged with comorbidities, uh, you know, they get beat up by anything. We think we're not really sure is the answer. You know, the 35 year old, previously healthy marathon runner, that kind of thing. It has to do with the body goes into this inflammatory response that is disproportional to the virus. And so everything in the body, and we see this occasionally, we call it this um, uh, the immune, uh, severe immune response. And so I've seen people, you know, 22 years old after when I was at Brook Army Medical Center, after an appendectomy got uh, sent to us in San Antonio from Fort Hood, 22 years old appendectomy and just went down the toilet he had he eventually died after two or three weeks but for some of these youngest people the inflammatory system just goes haywire uh and then that's kind of it i read somewhere too that maybe it's to do with your blood type does that make any sense yeah they're looking at different blood types whether that puts you at, at, at increased risk you know the scary thing is besides mitigating our contact there's nothing we can do about this you know you can't help the fact that you have certain blood type or you know if you're going to get it and it's going to happen, it's going to happen. You know, I heard somebody use the analogy too. It's like that split second when you, when you, if you fall, that split second right before you hit the ground, that's like where we are right now. Like there's no stopping it. You know, you're about to hit the pavement and there's like, it's going to be painful. You just got to, just got to bear with it and, and drive on and, and pray to God that you're going to be okay. And your family's going to be okay. Right. Um, so question, I mean, not to quiz on all this medical stuff, but what do you think of this, uh, hydroxychloroquine situation? Um, the, 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 everything that I've read in, you know, the scientific stuff and the dot groups, there's probably not great evidence that it works. However, we don't really know what works right now. And so I think it's kind of one of these things that doctors, uh, are throwing. I, I think prophylactically without getting sick, it's kind of stupid. Um, it may work, it may not, but you know, these things take randomized controlled trials and we don't have time for those. And so I think when they're using it, you know, they're using it off label and maybe it helps and maybe it doesn't. I mean, you see some of these studies of people that were like on death's door, you know, and then they started getting this drug and then they got better. And if it's, if there's nothing wrong with it, if, if there's, if it can't hurt you, it's kind of like shark cartilage for, for cancer right. patients, right? 
Right. Like if he, if it's not going to hurt you, and if it, some people think it works, why not just shit, just take it? You know. Exactly. That's that's kind of what what Trump was saying tonight. I think people are giving him a really hard time for it. And of course, there's the potential to create drug shortages for people that need that drug. But the, those the, those people that are that are in need of that drug, as far as I know, none of them are on. It's not a life and death situation for any of them. If you create a drug shortage, it's not a, it's not a life and death situation for somebody. If you get rheumatoid arthritis, you know, and you can't get your monthly supply of the drug, that sucks, no doubt. But right. you're not gonna die from that. Yeah. I mean, you probably you probably give it up to somebody if you knew it was gonna save their life. You need yeah. to suck yeah. it up with the flare up uh, our, of uh, our um, our guys are not using it at our hospital. Um, guys and gals, you know, they're um. But I know plenty of places that are, so I just don't know that much about it, to be honest. How many how many patients do you guys currently have in your in your hospital now? So uh, we have in the ICU, I think there's 10, 11, 12, 13 that are positive. And then our, um, so we have a whole separate ward outside of the ICU that is either are positives or presumptives. So, you know, the testing takes a while. So if, if they come in there, we call them presumptives and they don't need to go to the ICU, they go to this floor. And even what they're doing now, even if in two days, three days, their test comes back negative, they're keeping them over there to uh, just kind of avoid spreading these patients all over the hospital. I don't know our exact number, it's probably a couple dozen. Let me invite also our classmates. If you guys have questions, just populate them into the into the chat into the chat area and hopefully we'll see them. I think we're getting real time feed now of the uh, of the chat. So if there's questions you guys have for Dr. Brad Woods about COVID-19 or, or anything else, uh, be happy to uh, happy to address those. So so Brad, as you mentioned, this is not your this is not your first rodeo, right? You've been you've been through some tough times uh, as an army physician deployed in a wartime scenario. It's been some 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 horrible situations that you've that you've been through and you've powered through them. And as you point out, there's differences, right? The op tempo here is different. There's no time to decompress. There's this whole issue of like being able to, you know, manage self-care, which hopefully you are and your your colleagues are as well. But can you tell us about what you've seen uh, in terms of uh, Army medicine and the scenarios you've been through that have been real um, trials for you in, in your past? Oh, you talk about when I was deployed? Yeah. Yeah, so the first time that I was there would have been 2005 uh, in Mosul, which was way north. And Mosul kind of got early notoriety because that I got there in January of 05 and that December, so three weeks prior, they had had that dining facility bombing where a suicide bomber got in and killed a bunch of people. And so they had a mass casualty right there at the hospital. Uh, about three or four weeks. So they were still kind of reeling from that. Um, and then when I was in Mosul with the striker brigades and uh, he was Lieutenant Colonel at the time, uh, Carilla, I don't know if you've heard of him. He got kind of, he went on to lead the Ranger Regiment as a grad and just one of the, you know, the finest combat leaders. So there's a lot of fighting going on in Mosul. Um, and, you know, it was, I'll never forget the first uh, service person that, that, that died. Um, I'll, I'll never forget it. And unfortunately, there were there were many more when I was in Mosul, and we would have mass casualties. And uh, there was some stuff that is just like so horrific um, that you can't, you know, they don't teach it to you in school, and you didn't even think it was possible. 
So, you know, war is, war is horrible. So the stuff that you saw there in Mosul, that was kind of uh, the intro. Then when I was in, in Baghdad, uh, it was much the same. It was many more patients kind of every day, uh, almost kind of like MASH, but with better facilities, quite frankly. So how does that work? Do you like are you guys sort of like in a holding pattern? All of a sudden, you get a call like, "Hey, we've got this situation. We like be ready for the X Y Z thing that like come into the in, into the into the um, mass unit." Yeah. So the first time I was in Mosul, they actually had little pagers that worked all over the base because like the uh, the gym was like a mile away and it, it still reached. Uh, and then when I was in Baghdad, there were phones that we had to communicate with each other. So communication, uh, letting us know what was coming in was, was pretty good. And quite frankly, no one's going very far. You know, it's not like you're out, you know, shopping in town or anything. So everyone was kind of around. Are you working like in shifts the way that you are now, sort of like 12 on, 12 yeah. off? Yeah, we did differently at both places. Um, uh, but yeah, basically we did like 24, but it was kind of, uh, if you were on call, that just meant you were the first person that, that got called. Throughout the day, there was so much stuff that all the other surgeons, uh, you know, pitched in. So it was much more of a team effort than, you know, than an individual surgeon doing stuff. Mm -hmm. So there was there was one day in particular that you mentioned um, that uh, an 89 grad came in, uh, uh, then uh, Lieutenant Colonel Greg Gaston, right? Mm-hmm. So what was that like? I mean, were you just, were you like, were you warned ahead of time? Here's the situation. There's been an IED explosion. We've got to deal with this uh, mass casualty situation or how did, how did that happen? Yeah. You know, I, if I remember correctly, there weren't many other people that were brought in at the same time or, or they were injured very badly. So I was on call. So I was the first person uh, and it was seven, seven thirty. It was dusk and IED. Okay, great. And they come in there and, you know, all soldiers look alike. But somebody said, you know, holy crap, that's Greg Gadsden. He wasn't conscious at the time. And so I just remember, you know, he was really on death's doorstep. So we, uh, I, myself and another general surgeon took him up to the operating room right away. He got, you know, massive amounts of blood products. Uh, we operated on him for three or four hours, trying to temporize uh, things to take him back the next morning. Uh, we finished sometime in the middle of the night and that was one of the few times that I was asked to call back to the States because this is a big deal, battalion commander, uh, you know, getting blown up. And so there, I got the general actually came into the hospital and said, can you call Mrs. Gadsden? So I was calling back to Fort Riley. Um, Who was the general? Do you remember? I don't, honestly. I don't. Okay. I don't remember. Right. It was just unusual for a general, so I should have remembered. But um, right. Uh, yeah, so we took him back to the operating room the next morning, and as I told Greg and other people, he was so badly injured that had it just been one leg, we would have just amputated it right away, uh, but it was both, and so we thought, well, if we try to save both, maybe he'll keep one, and that was our, but he was really, really, uh, really, really sick. I think he probably got 40 or 50 or 60 units of blood and all that kind of stuff. So we took him back the next morning, four or five hours later, did a little more definitive surgery. And then, you know, I talked about uh, uh, one of our classmates showed up to accompany him. So the, the evac process, everyone went from our hospital uh, by helicopter to Balad, which was the Air Force base, probably a 30 minute flight directly north because they had a, not only an Air Force hospital, but they had, that was the staging area to go to Germany. We didn't have a, 
well, we had a runway at, at Baghdad, but not a runway next to our hospital. And so then they would fly it to Balad and get operated on and triaged and get in the medical system to go on to Germany. I don't know, I don't know if it was one of our classmates. It was Chuck Schretzman, right? That was oh, that's the, right. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You're right. It was Chuck. So Schretzman, Schretzman shows up. He's a, also a, a very accomplished Army football player. It was also in theater. Said, this is my buddy. I need to go with him, right? Yeah, and I didn't know what he was doing. I'd come to find out he was in this like asymmetric warfare group. I looked it up years later. He just kind of like showed up. He wasn't in Greg's unit. He's like, I'm going to, you know, Germany with him. And so we just chatted for a couple minutes. I didn't know him, you know, prior to that. Uh, but yeah, he got evac back with him. That's just intense. And so was he, did he ever, he never gained consciousness while you, I mean, he was, he was out the whole time. Yeah, he was, he was out the whole time. Um, he would have been out the whole time in Germany, I believe. You know, people talk about a medically induced coma. That's, that's what he was in. But, you know, when people have to go back, when they're so sick and have to go back for multiple operations, they're on the breathing machine. And so you just sedate them. And I don't think he, when I talked to him last, I don't think he even remembered Germany. I think his first recollections were, we're waking up in, in D.C. at Walter Reed, and that's probably, you know, for the better. So you've talked to him, actually. Since, obviously, you've talked to him since then. So what was yeah, that like so, to sort of engage with your patient that had been in such a dire straits? Yeah, that was crazy. So when I was still at Fort Riley, he came back, you know, a year or so later when he had been kind of farther down the road. I think he came back to, like, move his – with the family to move his stuff out back to D.C. And so I met with him – for 10 or 15 minutes and it was it was really emotional and then so we would stay in touch from time to time and you know he made that movie battleship movie and he was on like was it on the tonight show for for a little while we stayed in contact and then he actually asked me out to his chain uh, uh, uh change of command he took command of uh belvoir there and so i got to go out and i got some pictures with him i uh, got to go out and see him uh take command and that was that was a big. That was a big deal to to have that. Was that was the wounded, wounded warrior brigade, right? That he was in, in charge. No, he of took. Job, but he took. No, he took command of Fort Belvoir. He was. Oh, that's commander. right. He was the, the post commander. He, he was inside, yep. Prior to that, he was battalion commander. Was he battalion in commander Iraq? for? No, I know in Iraq he's like the battalion okay. commander for uh, yeah, yeah. combat battalion. Yeah, I'm, I, I don't he remember. He didn't have a role. No, I think I, you're right. You're right. You're right. I was thinking of somebody else actually. That was the. Uh, yeah. So then, he, but then he was the he was the um, what do they call it? The garrison commander of Fort Garrison, Belvoir, yep, right? Garrison, yep. And uh, I, I stayed kind of mildly peripherally in contact with him, and he's still up. And at the time, he was building a house in D.C. And uh, I think he's made his he's made his home there in D.C. And I didn't know this. He's an accomplished painter. If you go to his, yeah, his yeah, he's got like stuff in galleries and stuff. Well, and that's a good point. You have to up at West Point. A bunch of his, his paintings are up there at West Point. If you go up there, they're they're creating this new um, Army uh, Creative uh, Center or whatever, like a a uh, you know that that they're going to have like for um, it's going to be like I don't know they have paintings. They're going to have but they're they're going to have like not really art class for. Um, for cadets, but they're going to have like whatever art appreciation or some kind yeah. of, you know, Those are good. and, uh, it, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful new facility that they're building. It's going to hang off of the, off of trophy point, like in kind of like, kind of like be on the other side of trophy point, looking out over the, um, the water there. Oh, and wow. a bunch of his paintings, a bunch of his paintings are there in the makeshift version of it that they have over there by, uh, by where that is by trophy point. So I've seen yeah. those paintings. I guess the last time I would have, 
see, uh, would have seen him would have been uh, when we beat Navy for the first time in Baltimore. What year was that? Uh, that was 20, it was what, four years ago. So 20, 2016, 2016. Yeah. And so my, my wife and uh, daughter were with me and, you know, they'd heard stories about him and this was their first army Navy game. And uh, they got to meet him too. So that we got some pictures together with Greg at the time. And uh, that was cool. What a, what an amazing story. Yeah. So how, how long were you actually in Iraq for? What was the, what was the tour? So the general surgeons for the most part were there for six months. The, the units themselves, the medical units were there for a year. So we would kind of go, we weren't with them. We came from our different hospitals and, um, and would be there for six months. There's a few, there's a few exceptions. So the, the surgeons and OB-GYNs and urologists were there, the specialists for six months, the family medicine doctors, you know, that were deployed with the, uh, the brigades or the battalions, they were there for the whole, the whole stint. And while I was there in Baghdad was about the time of the surge, January, February of 07. And so uh, if you remember, everyone's tour got extended over there. And we were there when uh, the unit that was, we were attached to found out that their tour was no longer 12 months, but now 15 months. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a long time in theater away from the family, but we were there for, I was there for twice for six months each. So you mentioned that transitioning, like you, you've had a couple different transitions. There's the transition from regular army into medical service corps, and then there's transition out of medical service corps or not medical, no, medical corps, right? Med, not right, medical, right. medical corps. Right. And then medical corps into becoming a civilian uh, uh, doctor. And you said the transition from, if I may get this right, your biggest transition was going from regular army to medical corps. Going from medical corps to civilian was actually not a big deal. Right. So, right. So tell me a little bit about that, your transition so the, stories. So after the transition story, so after West Point, I was uh, field artillery from, well, 91 to 94 in Germany. Took my MCAT. There's actually a funny story about taking my MCAT. So I took it in, I'll digress here, took it in Munich. And so, uh, and there's a whole bunch of American international students. And so the, uh, the night before, you know, you kind of get prepared. You see, the, you see the route, you see this, that, or the other. You know, you don't want to, you can't, if you miss the test, that's it. You're not applying this year. And so uh, figured out the route and everything. And at the time, uh, what lieutenants did was just pass these cars down from person to person. So I had this $500 piece of crap BMW that worked at the time, you know, no, air, no AC, and uh, it wouldn't start. And so I was like, oh, my Lord, if I miss this test. And so we ended up when we had like no cash on us, this nice cab driver took, uh, took pity on me and took me to the test. And so I took my MCAT in, in uh, Germany. But then after I transitioned, so the transition from field artillery to the medical corps, uh, I was a little nervous. You know, I was in a field artillery unit and I, I was like, what are they going to say when I tell them I want to go be a doctor? You know, they're going to think I'm this bad field artillery lieutenant. And, uh, you know, like some pansy or whatever. But they were, my battalion commander was super supportive. He's like, hey, listen, my brother-in-law is a physician. If you don't get in this time through the scholarship, get out of the Army. And if you want to be a physician, be a physician. So that was cool. So I did the HPSB, Health Profession Scholarship Program. And I went back down to the University of Texas in Galveston because that was close to where I grew up and went to high school. And, you know, for 11 months out of the year, uh, I was a civilian. And so... 
um, we actually had these little medical fraternities and having not had that experience at West Point, I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. And this is what, you know, kind of postgraduate life is like. Uh, so down there at Galveston, uh, you know, they don't, you're just one of them. So your hair, you can, you know, do whatever. And then you would do these rotations during the summer where you had to cut your hair, you know, put the uniform on. Uh, so that transition was a little interesting. And then going back into the army from, from uh, that wasn't that big of a deal to be a surgeon in, in San Antonio because, you know, you had to put on your uniform every day, but we did that our whole time. Uh, transition. So you're a captain, you're a captain when you, so you like, when you left, you left as a captain, you go back in as captain, I guess. Is that the way it so works? So it's a screwed up formula. So I actually left as a first lieutenant, like promotable when I left field artillery. And then when you do HPSP, you're a reserve second lieutenant for pay and all these other purposes. And then when you finish medical school, yeah, you're, you see so you're a captain. Uh, and then I was, because I had some obviously prior service, I got promoted to major quicker than the other captains who hadn't been. Uh, so it's kind right. of so weird. On. You went from being a first lieutenant promotable back to being a second lieutenant and they pay you as a second lieutenant. Correct. Yeah. So you have to get a pay cut, but at least you got your years of service though, right? I guess you got a little bit more than. So yeah, you got your years of service. When it came time to get out of the army, this is kind of jumping around. They did this complicated formula where they didn't give you, you didn't get all the time that you were in residency and medical school. So when I was first retire, I had, or get out, I had 12 years in. So I had to make a choice whether to stay eight more years to get the 20. And I was like, no way, that's not even close. You know, I'm out. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a weird way. But when you're going to medical, so you're also in there with like people that have zero military experience. So like when, when, when you're there, like those people that are like, I'm going to go to med school, become an army doctor. They don't even know how to salute, right? They're, they're like completely clueless. So were you like the high speed, low drag, like badass, like West Pointer, like in, in, med, in med school? Uh, well, in, in med school, it's, you know, there's very few other HPSP. And there was like, okay. you had them on three fingers. I was the only army guy. There was a Navy guy that was there. Uh, and so there's no military bearing, you know, whatsoever. You're just, you're a civilian medical student. When you go back into the army as an army doctor, yeah. So not, some, some of the people that was their, you know, first time, they actually had to go to uh, medical corps OBC where they learned to, you know, uh, put a uniform on. Your left hand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like strapped or anything. It was, I was just a surgery resident. Were there any other classmates that were going through it at the same time as you around the same time? So, uh, from West Point, uh, Neil Cooper went straight through, uh, Andre Follett, Follett, who's on here, one of our classmates, I keep in touch with him. He went, he was our classmate, went straight through. I think I was the only person who went, you know, two, three years down the road. So when you were in doing your ATs and stuff, you weren't in there with any other West Pointers, were you? No. Not okay. that I can remember. I know Mark Potter. Mark Potter went in. He, Mark Potter is my company mate. He's also a doc. I think he was also field artillery as you, and then went in around the same time. But you guys didn't really fast. Yeah. No. And then his wife was also in medical school. She was like, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll just become an army doctor too. And she was like, just, you know, throw a uniform on her and, and teach her a few things and boom, she's an army doc, you know? So there you go. Mark Potter went through, he went through prep school, he went through four years at West Point, med school, they're both doing the same thing. But he, 
he ended up staying for the whole 20 years. And then he, uh, he just retired and, uh, was a civilian doc out in Seattle. Cool. So so did you always want to be a doctor? Like growing up, was this your plan that you would always? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah. And and so, but when I got accepted to West Point, that kind of trumped everything. I wanted to go to West Point more than I necessarily wanted to be a doctor. And I didn't think it was like an option. I was going to, I actually started out on the mechanical engineering track. And, um, and, and so for a year I was a mechanical engineering track and I was like, man, this just doesn't, man, it's just not clicking. I don't, I don't know if I could do this. And then Craig Rooney was in my company. He's like, oh yeah, I'm on the pre-med track. I'm like, wait, that's a thing. And so halfway through yearling year, I switched over to the the life sciences, which is kind of the pre-med track. I'm like, you know, let me do this. And uh, so I took all the classes and then that MCAT that I took, uh, um, uh, well, I would have taken it around the West Point time, uh, didn't do like stellar in it. And, you know, I didn't really want to go out there and apply and not get accepted. So I'm like, let me go out to the, I like field artillery. I did my CTLT as field artillery. Uh, let me Where'd go out you do that. that? Where was your, where was CTLT? I was in Bamberg, Germany. Nice, nice. Yeah, it was with eight-inch howitzers, actually. And, uh, nice. yeah, they've been retired for a while, but uh, eight-inch, and I loved it. I'm like, yeah, I want to go, I want to go field artillery, and I'm glad I did. I had a ball. So, since we're on this uh, topic, let's, let's think about, like, you know, the West, going into West Point. So, going into West Point, you want to become a doctor, but going to West Point was even the most important thing. If I get into West Point, I could figure everything else out, but Yep. In high school, you had an idea, like, I would maybe want to be a physician someday. You you thought yeah. about that. Yeah. What made you want to go to West Point? Uh, so, as we talked about, you know, my dad, he was in the, actually the Navy. He did not go to the Academy. We spent a couple of years in the Philippines, so I kind of grew up in that lifestyle. Uh, my grandfather, so, you know, multiple generations had been to war. And honestly, I, I wanted to, like most of us, just challenge myself. I wanted to, you know... Um, I actually had a Na- I had been accepted and had a Navy uh, scholarship at Vanderbilt. Went up there with my dad to check it out, and I'm like, oh, this is cool, but it still kind of wasn't what I wanted to do. And so when the West Point thing uh, panned out, uh, you know, we all know the prestige of it, and I figured if I go to West Point, uh, that'll set me up for good stuff down the road. Did you consider the Naval Academy too? I did. And so it it was, uh, it's kind of weird the way things work out. So, you know, how the whole congressmen have their ranking system and, uh, for Naval Academy and Air Force Academy, it's kind of this complicated jumble. So I got a call. Uh, so, so I was supposed to go to the Naval Academy and I remember getting this call, uh, from the coordinator who's like, Hey, listen, I'm sorry. And I forget exactly what happened, but the Naval Academy, you know, you're not going to get in. And then like an hour or two later, I got a call from the same person who said, you're number one on the West Point list if you'll go to West Point. I, I, for months, I thought I was going to the Naval Academy. I'm like, heck yeah, I'll go to West Point. And uh, so, yeah, that's how that worked out. So you mentioned you grew up in the Philippines. You were in the Philippines. How long were you in the Philippines for? From uh, 80 to 82. My dad was uh, in the um, kind of supply, supply side of the Navy. And so we went over there. Um, and that was a heck of an experience, you know, being 13 or 14, my brother actually, uh, got malaria over there, falciparum malaria. When we did our, um, when we did our like pre, uh, not deployment, but pre-move physical, we were in the air force base in Arizona. 
and we saw the doctor there and he said, you know what, there hasn't been a case of malaria in the Philippines and, you know, essentially since World War II. Don't worry about it. You don't have to take the quinine. And then my brother got these kind of cyclical fevers, you know, as, as malaria goes. And it was a smart Navy doctor who was like, maybe this is malaria, you know, even though they hadn't had a case there in 40 years or something. And uh, sure enough, he had malaria and he got treated and he's fine. But uh, yeah, so that was wow. our intro. That was our, that was our first couple months in the Philippines. So it's just you and your brother growing up? Or do you have other siblings? My brother, yep. Yeah, no, my brother, he's about two years younger than I am. He is a, uh, uh, well, he was the bank manager. He works for U.S. Bank in uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky. He does loans and stuff. Are your folks folks still around and settled someplace? Yeah, my or? folks are, uh, they're getting older like uh, like everybody. They, um, my parents have, my dad grew up in Maine. And so when I, when they got out of Houston, Houston was so, you know, after I moved away, so crowded and humid. They're like, let's get out of here. So they have a, excuse me, a summer home up in Maine, right on the coast. And then they uh, kind of winter and uh, just outside of Albuquerque, they have a house up in the Sandia Mountains there. And so uh, they spend about half the half their time in each place. Is that where they are now? Yeah, they're, 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 in, New they're, in, they're in Mexico. Yeah, and they're supposed to go back. I got on flights to go back in, well, in May. Who knows? Who knows what will happen? You know, they're older. My dad's got a bunch of medical problems, so they're they're hunkering down. Yeah, you got, I mean, my mom, I'm real concerned about her. I, I'm going there, dropping food at her door, stepping back 10 feet, letting her open the door, say hello to her. You know, Crazy. she's throwing stuff out to me. Yeah, so got to be concerned about those older those older parents, you know. Absolutely. They don't always listen. No. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, so, uh, so, so what was, so, so you, you, by the way, was your, was your dad retired by the time you were in uh, West Point, or was he still? Yeah, in he got out. At that time? He was he was in the reserves, and so that's he was just active duty in the reserves for you know three two and a half three years when we were there, and then he went back to being a civilian. Oh, okay, I see. So then, uh, and what did he do as a civilian? So he, uh, you know, obviously grew up. Uh, he went to the Maine Maritime Academy, actually. Um, and so then he taught, uh, Texas A&M Galveston, he taught in, in, in that school. And then he opened, uh, started his own consulting business when we were in high school and did that for the rest of his life, maritime consulting stuff. Cool. Yeah. So, so, so you, you decide to go to West Point because Naval Academy didn't accept you, which is not the greatest story. It'd be, it'd be better to say like, ah, you know, I said, screw no, your I, Naval Academy. Yeah. No, no, uh, that's true. It's funny how that works too. I think it's it's always been the same. Like you you never know who's gonna who's gonna accept you, who's not, you know. But uh, yep. and you you didn't go to the prep school. You went straight in, I guess, to, to West Point. Yeah. And then um, so tell me, like, what was like you you got this you got this company full of uh, uh, really interesting characters and and plebeier. So what was that like? I mean, how was it? Who was your roommate? What was your most memorable stories? Give me the whole lowdown of uh, I wrote, I wrote A2 three being down. a Spartan. Yeah, and so, you know, A2 kind of had this uh, correct perception, actually, of just being these hazes and just, like, just pricks. And and I'll give you a couple examples. They were, and for some reason, they kind of had it. I don't know. They had it out for me. I just attracted uh, lightning. My beast roommate was John Dinges. He doesn't stick around. He's not all that active with the uh, graduates, but I just remember him, like, eating toothpaste we were so hungry 
and uh, oh, really? Yeah, he, yeah. He was a little, he was a little chubby, so he split a bunch of pounds off. You know, we were all hungry, not like any of us ate. Uh, but to give you a story about a two, the the day that we had come back from um, from Christmas leave. You know, we're all kind of sitting in our room before that first evening formation. And that was the first time, I'm sure you remember, you could have radios or stereos. So that was a big deal. So we all had our radios and stereos, and three or four of us were sitting in the room there. And the upperclassmen came back and just unilaterally decided, no, these guys are having too much fun. You know, they opened the door, we're sitting there listening to music before evening formation. So they just decided, ah, we're taking all the radios away. So all the upperclassmen took all the Fleet's radios away. Uh, the second semester. And so you go to evening formation, your radio's a bit confiscated, you're like, this sucks, man. You know, I got another five months of this. And so I go, I was uh, uh, cutting the cake that night and it's flipping German chocolate cake. And I'm just like, are you tough kidding one. me? Tough one. And so, you know, I, I butchered it and, you know, our, our upperclassmen, like I said, were just jerks. You know, you never got to cut eight pieces. It was always seven or nine. And I just butchered it. And so uh, I'll never forget the table come, you know, he gets it and he, and he goes like, holy shit, Wood, get up here. And so, you know, I kind of, you know, go up to the head of the table. He's like, uh, he's like, you, I cannot... slices? you tried to do nine or 10 or what were we trying to cut? Yeah, it was an odd number. And, you know, the, you yeah. know they, let you, they let you wet your knife, but, you know, dragging it through that, that, that frosting is just looks like a pit blade, oh. you know? <laughs> and so it was so he starts he starts yelling at me and then but that wasn't enough and he you know he screams over to a buddy like four or five tables he's like hey john you got to get a load of this he's like what take that cake over there so i had to like ping over and get hazed by some other random table com uh and, and this was our first day back you know from christmas leave i'm like this sucks man this is just this is just horrible and so a2 was That's the beginning a2, of the, the beginning of the gloom period That's like the worst time yeah. Although, what's it gonna, we didn't even talk about what's it going to be like right now. These cadets are all home. I know. I mean, if you're if you're a plebe, you don't even get to get the recognition day thing. Like it's like right. you're done. Like you're yearling now, basically. How crazy want, must that be? I don't want to say the core has, but uh, my wife went our 25th reunion. My wife went with us. Uh, had heard a whole bunch about West Point, and so we're standing there. My wife and myself and Brian Backey, who, you know, one of my company mates, we stay in good, uh, stay in touch. He's a great guy. We're standing there talking to, we just grabbed some random plead to ask him kind of what life was like. And whenever, you know, he's sitting there talking to us and I'll never forget another plead, uh, like 50 feet away wants to get this plead's attention. And so just yells at him, Hey, John, or whatever. And John's like, Hey, how you doing? You want to go to dinner tonight? Okay. And we had to wrap our heads around the fact that we're standing here in October of plebe year, and this plebe is talking to a couple old grads, you know, basically, hey, hold on, I got to, you know, talk to this guy. <laughs> Brian Mackey and I are sitting there, and we asked the guy, we're like, what's the worst thing that has happened, you know, thus far to you this year? And I think he said something to the effect of the internet connection was bad or down for a few days or something. And Brian Mackey and I were just like shaking our heads, like, oh man. So, but A two A two was no fun. So what? What's some other some other A two memories you have? Um. Okay. So those those uh, those our plebeier those guys were like there was like physical hazing. One of the one of our classmates at the time, Ken Wayno, who is now if you look him up on Facebook. 
it's not an exaggeration to say a world-class composer and um, um, a, a symphony guy. He literally goes across the world. He'll pop up in Beijing or Saigon or- but He didn't you know, graduate? No, graduate so, but the stuff, okay. the stuff that they did to him, I'll never forget, they said they had us down in the basement. It was before, like 5.30 in the morning, they woke us all up and had us down in the day room with uh, doing deep knee bends with paint cans. And I'll never forget, Ken Wayno just about passed out. Uh, and it's probably better for him in the world that he left because he's now making beautiful music. But th that was the kind of like, hazing and, and uh, A2 that they did. Um, but, you know, you, you bond with these guys and, and you live four years with them and your classmates, that's what helps you get through, you know. Um, I think I recall from Becky said that there was four four female cadets that started and three of them left. She was the only one left at one point. And then the, you guys yeah, brought we, in another another one of our yeah, classmates to be her roommate. Holly uh, Silkman now. Um, yeah, so Holly, gosh, I've forgotten about that. Yeah, Holly was brought in because the other females, and I forget what year she was brought in, but yeah, it, it didn't look good that A2 had no you know females in them in our class and so brought Holly in and she uh, graduated with us. I'm so fascinated today to think back, I mean, I was oblivious at the time of the unique challenges it must have been like to be a woman at West Point at that time. Because you're, you're, you're only 10 years out from the beginning of them letting women in there to start off right. with or the first female right. grad. There's nobody there in the administration that has been a, that, that has the experience of having been a cadet. Any female officer, all the tacks, all the P's that were female officers, none of them were grads. They were just too, you know, the grads at the time were too young. So there was no, there was no institutional experience among the leadership that were women cadets, that, that, that were women officers who had been women cadets, you know? And I think we actually, that, uh, actually one of our tacks was uh, uh, Mimi Finch, Mary Finch. And I think she was class of 80, and she was our tax for a while. So we had one. Oh, so there was. There was one. Okay, she was probably yep. the very beginning of it then. I, I think she was And that must have been when we were firsties then. Had to be when we were firsties. It wasn't when we were like yeah. younger. Right. Yeah. Think, think about it. We went in there in 87. We yep. went in there in 87. The first grads were in 80, so they were only seven years into their Army career. So at yep. best, they were maybe having their commands and getting ready to go to grad school. So. She's probably yeah. one of the very first. I think she was. Yeah. So I've noticed, you know, there's a there's a tremendous. Um, I think there's a tremendous camaraderie around among our female our female classmates. There's a special a really special bond that they all have with each other uh, that I'm that I'm just intrigued by. And so one of the things in the old grad podcast, I've always been trying to have a level of diversity in in the people that I've interviewed. I'm looking from representation across different companies we've got people of color we've got career army officers we've got civilians <clears throat> the one thing that hasn't been super highly represented have been female cadets currently we've, we've had a few probably six or seven which is maybe proportionately the right amount but uh i've been been texting with people trying to get them to come on and there's been a little bit of reticence about trying to come on and so one of my one of my upcoming episodes I'm really excited about, I'm having all four of the female cl uh, classmates from my company that are going to be on at the same time. Oh, that's awesome. So we're going to be able to, I think there'll be a level of uh, 
realness that they're able to give to because you know we there's like no barriers there you know we like you know i love them like family like sisters and so like i i think that it's going to be it's going to be interesting i'm looking forward to that one of the things i've noticed about them too the four the four women from company f1 is that they always check with each other on what's what's what they're doing like like hey we're gonna go do xyz like sharon are you in stephanie you in you know Libby, are you like they're, they're, first of all they all look out for each other they're like a little unit four of them like they always look out for each other and they kind of check in with each other too so i'm fascinated by that i want to i want to dig into that further yeah i listen i listen to some uh, as i said as i was driving here listen to some uh becky's podcast and and like you were saying, you know, at the time, you don't really appreciate what some of these different people are going through, be it minorities or, or, or women. Uh, you know, we were the majority there. We were, you know, white guys. And so I don't think I appreciated, like you said, what some of these uh, other people and groups were kind of going through. So it was really interesting to listen to Becky's kind of what she was struggling with, in addition to being, you know, a female. Just thinking my daughter was telling me something today. I can't remember the name. There's a name for this. There's a name for everything now. There's a name for every possible thing, you know? Thing, yeah. There's a name there's a name for something which is that when you are shit, I can't remember the name of it. Like is when with like you and I right now, two white guys talking. Like there's a certain there's a certain level of familiarity we have with each other that we wouldn't necessarily have if it was maybe a person of color or a woman or somebody transgender or whatever. And uh, there's a name for it when you have this immediacy, this comfort with somebody that's like similar versus something else. I, I'll, I'll think of the name of it and I'll, I'll bring it up. But she's like on the cutting edge of all this kind of stuff, my, my, uh, of what's politically correct and how to term everything. But it is interesting though. You think about the way that you sort of like take up space and the way that you go around about your business in the world. You know, you're a white guy, successful. You don't think about like, uh, you try you try to think maybe, you try to be aware of it, but you don't have this awareness of the fact that there is like this privilege that comes with um, all this kind of, uh, uh, you know, all the different sort of identities that we hold, so. Anyway, well, my daughter's one quick, quick, quickly call me out on all this stuff. And you're running the podcast, but that may be a good transition to talking about some of that other stuff uh, that I've done and has opened my eyes. You know, I grew up in Clear Lake City, Texas, which is the Johnson Space Center. So everyone was middle class, but I mean, they were engineers and scientists. And so my school is a public school, but was very white. And I, I, I think in my class of 700, there were two African-Americans. One was my friend. I had one African-American friend and, and two Jewish friends, and the rest were just like me. So, you know, when, you, when you're in the Army and at West Point and then in the regular Army, there, you start to see this diversity. And then having lived in the, in the Philippines was really my first eye-opening that, you know what, the rest of the planet is big and they're not like us. And we're not, you know. Uh, and so then when I had the opportunity to go, uh, I guess we'll talk about this, to be a surgeon in Malawi, my wife and I had been to South Africa a couple of years before that and been to Johannesburg and Soweto and, and walked in those, those 
just indescribable ghettos where a thousand people share one tap, uh, one you know tap of fresh water. And so when we went to South Africa, our eyes were even more open. And when I went to be a, a surgeon in Malawi for a couple of weeks, in my mind, that was when it kind of solidified like, man, oh man, there is so much to be done out there. And we are so lucky. And I grew up to one of my good friends from high school termed it the genetic lotto. You know, we as Americans and white guys, we, I hit the genetic lotto. You know, I was just born into a great family and born, uh, not rich, but born with all these opportunities and a stable family and they, uh, you know, in a stable church and, and I just had everything going for me. I may have hit a home run, but as they say, I probably started on third base. And, um, and so when I came back from Africa, uh, I was like, you know what, there's got to be another reason to, to wake up every morning instead of just stuff. And so my wife and I started to financially support some buildings there in Africa. And then, then she opened my eyes to the fact that, you know what, you don't have to go to Africa to, to make these changes. And um, you can't go to Africa, you know, every four months just with my job and everything. And so we started getting involved in our local communities. The question is, you know, if I can't go save half of Africa, what can we do? And the more that we opened our eyes to the needs just around us, and I say around us, I mean down the street, this uh, underprivileged school that we've become a uh, helping out, you know, sponsor, the more that we saw these needs, we're like, man, we got to start helping out. We got to start moving the needle, doing like you and Becky, and you just, your eyes are opened. Um, and you just want to make the world a little better place at the end of every day. Um, and so, for instance, we'd go to this elementary school and talk to the principal. It's like, well, what do you need? Stuff that you and I can't even think of. So a lot of it was elementary school. So kindergarten to fifth, I think. A lot of these kids don't know their exact birthdays. And we're like, what? Well, what are you talking about? They don't know their exact birthday because growing up and still growing up, there's no money to celebrate the birthday. So when you and I were growing up in our whole lives, parents made a big deal of it and took you to roller skating or whatever. But these kids don't even know their exact birthday. Half of them don't even have a bed to sleep on. This is a mile from my house, you know. Um, and then this is, we uh, Topeka, Topeka, and Topeka, yeah. And so then my wife was like, you know, we've been blessed with so much. How we went to the principal, like, how can we help? And so. For instance, the birthdays, you know, they don't know their birthdays. And so we put together uh, little packages where it's a couple little trinkets for them and then a cake. And a lot of them don't have like ovens at home. And so the school will bake them a cake, but something special for that kid on their birthday. And then we started talking to them and found out that a lot of the kids, they don't have washers and dryers at home. So these kids would come with sinky clothes and my wife through her business, Synagent. They sponsored and were kind enough to buy a washer and dryer. So now that school has a washer and dryer so the kids don't have to, you know, because the, the social worker was taking time to out of her schedule to go wash these kids' clothes. And so I guess the point is, you know, the, to your larger point that we take a lot of this stuff for granted, uh, you know, my wife and I now are uh, just trying to help out as many people as we can locally and in addition to Africa. Um, that's kind of where our focus is now. How amazing. You know, I listened to a recent podcast of a guy who's a principal of a school in Newark, and he talked about the impact of bringing washers and dryers into the school, which, like, I would never even think about this. I mean, you obviously you obviously did think about it. I didn't think about it until I heard about it. And 
he said it actually made such a huge difference in terms of their attendance. The kids would be missing school because they had to go wash their clothes, and now they could get their clothes washed in school. It's a perfect time to, you know, put your laundry, like, you know, in between class with your laundry. It made kids come to school more. Once they got over the initial stigma of, like, hey, we're bringing our laundry to school, everybody started doing it, and now it's like it's getting more kids to come to school. It's incredible. Yeah, it's yeah, stuff you don't even think of. Like, the, I think the registration fee at the school is a public school, so it's like 10 or $15. And the principal would say they would have a hard time pre-registering their, their kids, these kids, because either A, their parents didn't have the 10 or 15 bucks, or B, their parents had they just gone out of a homeless shelter, so they didn't have an address, you know, to fill out. And so they were worried that their kid wouldn't be able to go to school there. And so we started thinking like 10 or $15 to us. I mean, that's probably, you know, there's that much in change in our console and our car for crying out loud, you know, we spend 10 or $15 before all this, it's no big deal. And so you know, my wife and I are really focused on every, everyone can make a difference. Some people are really blessed financially and can give, but just however we can, you know, interact with our community, be it serving up soup at the food kitchen. I think now this pandemic, I think most people would agree, uh, there's a lot more introspection in what can I do for my neighbor and for my coworkers that were maybe uh, beforehand, we were so just kind of, you know, uh, with blinders, this is my life, and I'm making a living, and you know, just kind of self self absorbed. I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of like what Governor Cuomo said too. It's, it's time to practice humanity. You yeah. Know, the, the, it's, it's time to practice humanity. Be like a little, a little bit more. I I think it's possible that we're going to see some of the best of America in the next uh, couple weeks, a couple months. You look at, and this is, I mean, of course, you know just hands down, like amazing praise for people like you and our classmates on the front lines, like Monique Washington, like Kami Ayanako, Mark Potter, our other classmates that are nurses and doctors and EMTs, of course, all, all of that. But I think that also in addition to that is going to be the leadership that we see that is uh, all throughout our, our country, people working in education, people working in policy and government, people working in business, I heard another amazing story today about the collaboration between Ventec, that was the manufacturer of the ventilation machines, and General Motors. And the guys from Ventec were talking about, they just didn't even understand the level of incredible resources that General Motors had in supply chain management. You know, these little pistons and these little gaskets and all these things that they needed to make ventilators that were that were kind of the critical path of them being able to increase their output. Like overnight, these guys, you know, 24-7 supply chain, you know, uh, specialists were bringing to bear like this unbelievable network of suppliers to be able to do tools and die casting and move them from 150 ventilator capacity per month to 5,000. And they're going to be at 10,000 within two months. It's incredible. And that's, I think, it's just it's the ingenuity. It's the magic of uh, a great leadership in in, uh, in business that's going to make that happen. I'm sure our classmates are going to be all over this stuff. Yeah, I was kind of reflecting. I was like, what is this comparable to in our lifetimes? It's really nothing. I was thinking about, you know, 9-11, you know, that was a shock. We lost a lot of people and lives were disrupted. But if you think about it, our leadership at the time, you know, within a week or two was like, hey, let's get back to our lives. And the people started vacationing and going to malls. And for, for those of, who, of us who were deployed, you know, it was 
uh, a sacrifice. But for most of America, life got back to normal fairly quickly. And for most of America now, life's not going to get back to normal for you know a long, long time. And the only other thing I could think from my reading of history is World War II, where there was this national, uh, you know, national sacrifice and national focus for a common good that that trans that transcended their own or their community's goods. And so I, I agree with you. I think we're hopefully some really good stuff comes out of this, where as a nation uh, we get together, you know, and and defeat this. Well, my hat's off to you and to all the people that are helping to make this make this work. Um, to uh, maybe put some more levity into this and to and to jump back to something uh, a little more uh, uh, funnier, I guess, in nature. Um, there's a there's a little comment here in the in the feed that we have to talk about boxing class. So tell me oh. your boxing class story. Oh, is that that's probably Brian Mackey. I've forgotten that. Brian Mackey. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, I was not, I was one of the few, like, I didn't play high school sports. I was a nerd. I, I got there because of my grades and luck and God's grace. But uh, so plea boxing was tough. I was not an athlete. And so, uh, you know, we did, if you remember, did four matches. And then after the, the, I think the first one was just random. And, you know, they did even, and then they started to match up the winners and the losers as it went down towards the, the, the fourth match. So I think it was the first or second match when I was quite evenly matched. Uh, Brian Mackey was my corner coach or whatever the heck you call him. And uh, when the bell rung and I get up there, he's like, all right, Brown, let's go get him, you know, get him in there, tear him up. <laughs> and by the end, all I can remember hearing was Brian Mackey like, hold on, Brad, it's almost over. Hold on there. You're almost done. <laughs> just like, just survive, you know, because I was just getting a tar whipped out of me. And uh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that story. Brian was. What do you think coach. about boxing now? What do you, I mean, knowing now what you know, being a physician, knowing about concussions. I mean, should we be still boxing? Is, is that something that we uh, need know, to have? Probably some kind of close quarters combat. I but I can remember uh, those Saturdays when we would have Saturday class after a Thursday or Friday boxing match, still having a headache on Saturday. And so that's obviously a concussion or a head injury. And nowadays, if that happens, you know, your doctor and coach would take you out for, you know, two or three months. So back then, you just kind of grin and bear it. So it was character developing, but it's probably not the, uh, the best thing, especially when you have headaches days later. I got another story here about you jumping on a grenade in Buckner. Yeah, Buckner was interesting. So uh, we were on, it was our infantry weekend. For those of you that are infantry guys, that was, you know, you guys love that stuff. For me, I was, I, I didn't like the stuff. So that's why I went to the artillery so I could sleep in. As a matter of fact, during infantry, <laughs> during, I'll tell that story, during infantry week, I emptied, I hate being hungry. I hate being hungry. And uh, so I emptied my, uh, uh, my entrenching tool case. And my, I took my entrenching tool out and instead stuffed it with Pop-Tarts. Nice. I literally stu stuffed it with Pop-Tarts, which made it creative yeah difficult to make a fast defensive position but um we were patrolling one day and the uh, cadre you know threw out a grenade uh and like without thinking i just like jumped on it so i won the i got a buckner medal of honor or something thankfully it didn't go off <laughs> i jumped on the grenade nice literally nice. literally um yeah so that's 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 that story did you go to OBC with Rich Campbell? Was he in your OBC class? 
I don't remember, honestly. I uh, I had a bunch of bunch of company mates from FA from from F1, but I remember he told the story. They were at he was at OBC and they were you know doing some training exercise with a you know a captain you know young captain who was one one of the instructors, and so they were like you know like had a sand table and everything. He's okay. Well now we're gonna go up to you know like now we have to head up to that to that uh that high peak over there and like looks over it's probably like you know five clicks away and like you know two thousand vertical two thousand foot vertical it's like okay we're gonna just go head up there and everybody put the rucksacks on and start going it goes gentlemen the king of battle doesn't walk we ride put your stuff in the back of the home v let's go (laughs) (laughs) and they drove up there the king doesn't walk the king rides yeah, our, our field artillery uh, instructor was this Marine who's just a total, I, I know he had a big chip on his shoulder and, uh, you know, probably cut his hair every day, but he, he would not, you know, he would not say the word, the letter nine. It was always, you know, two niner palms for 29 palms. And he was just like the biggest tool. But we had some good times in FAOBC. Yeah, we had some good times. It seemed like you guys had such a good time, actually. I remember seeing pictures of it and just being jealous because I was at, you know, Fort Leonard Wood and there was like nothing. And it seemed like you guys had a much, oh, we had, a, we had a we had a good, a really good bunch of people. We had a good time hanging out with each other, but there's nothing to do. It's like, it's just like, a lot Oklahoma, yeah, a lot in Oklahoma is not exactly a, uh, you know, somewhere where you can retire, but there were at least a couple of bars and restaurants and stuff. Yeah. Doug Wynn's just commenting that uh, he can attest to the fact that you you hate to go hungry. I guess you had a good boodle stash there, huh? Yeah, I always got plenty of boodle uh, from, and even when I was in fit artillery, we'd go to, uh, I don't know, were you ever stationed in Germany? I did CTLT in Germany. I was in, um, okay. I was in Darmstadt. Yeah. So, you know, you go to a month at a time to Grafenwehr and, uh, yeah, yeah. Wild looking. Wild flicking and then uh, so I had I was a fire direction officer at the time and so you know could take a bunch of stuff above the uh, or on the truck and so I had a actually it was my foot locker from West Point and I would just pack it with you know ramen and soups and puddings and so that when we didn't get hot chow I I never went hungry hate to go hungry. You ever get, were you ever stationed in Korea? No, just just Germany. Uh-huh. Decree, you never have to worry about that because there's always like just this caravan of people coming behind you just to sell you stuff. So you get ramen, noodles, and you know candy bars, whatever you want. Like you know, Ajima would just sell that to you right there, right in the field. That was the greatest part about going to the field. <laughs> Eat so well because Ajima would cook for you. Yeah, we didn't have that in Germany. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was some good times. Some good times. Um, so uh, when you when you think about kind of like your dark moments of your life or the tough times, the trials, the trials that you've been through, um, you know, uh, how, how often is it that you have to kind of rely upon or how is it that you rely upon the lessons learned at West Point, the character building, the, 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 the grit and determination? Uh, I would say, you know, a bunch, you know, all through medical school was, was not easy. Surgery residency was just brutal and just brutal. But I, and I went back to that West, that plea beer at West Point where you're studying and getting your butt kicked and in a hazing company. And, uh, you know, they did that survey within the last year or so of West Point grads and cadets and 
that's a, by and far the number one, uh, you know, kind of trait that helped them get through wasn't their smarts or wasn't their likableness or it was their grit and determination. And so I think some of, a lot of us, of course, had that when we came into West Point, but you can't leave West Point without that grit and determination to just put your head down. And, it, you know, when I was in, uh, when I was in Iraq, it, it, you can't stop the clock. And so you knew at West Point that if you stuck, if you put your head down and plowed through, there was a 90 something percent chance that you were going to graduate in four years. They couldn't stop that as long as you did your part. And, and that's how I've seen these kind of long, long stretches of, of difficult times. I posted something on my Facebook the other day. One of the, my favorite quotes was from uh, uh, James Stockdale, you know, the running mate of Ross Perot back in the, in the eighties. And he was seven and a half years. He was a POW in Vietnam. And he said, you know, the true test of character isn't uh, seeing the light, you know, hanging on when the light is in the tunnel, but perseverance and, and maintenance of character when there's no hope of the light ever coming. And so, you know, those guys hung on not knowing if they'd ever get out. And, you know, one day after another, but they just put their head down. And the same thing with West Point. You put your head down and you drive on. And whether it's a month or a year, you know that you'll, uh, you'll get through it. Maybe that's some good advice to pass along to some of your colleagues that have less experience with these types of trials that are about to endure one of the toughest lessons of our, or one of the toughest times of our nation's history. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get through this and, uh, you know, we won't be shut down in the medical forever and the medical workers, uh, it's going to be, you know, weeks or months of hard times. And, and, and that's where I kind of have to fall back. I'm not in charge there, but certainly as the surgeon, I have people that work just to kind of keep the morale up and let them know that, you know, we're all in this together and, and we'll get through this. Don't know when, it'll probably be a while, but uh, the end will come. I'm looking here too. I mean, another thing I think is important in these tough situations, as I'm sure you've been in, is a little bit of levity that you could bring or the humor or sort of memorable stories. Um, so I'm looking here, you, you wrote, Two memorable stories from your your time. One was uh, oh, yeah. tripping on the pass and review in front of President Reagan. Yeah, so uh, we just have a couple minutes left, but I was already a, a lightning rod, and I forget what month he came. It would have been the fall, obviously. And the night before, they had whoever is in charge to put out these little strings to kind of mark the lanes or whatever. And some of the strings weren't, I guess, pulled up. So as a plebe, I'm sitting there marching, and we had not made the turn to come around. We had not made the loop yet directly in front of the uh, reviewing stand. As you remember, he was kind of standing on the side of it was different we, than all we, the other. We ones. marched backwards. We marched. Yeah. We marched. They turned it around so that it would people wouldn't he'd be blocked by the barracks to not get shot at or something, right? Yep, exactly right. So before we had made a turn, I'm marching along, and I guess my foot caught one of these things, and I went down. I can actually remember hitting a, a knee and kind of losing my rifle and my tarbuck. I think it flipped off but then you know it doesn't stop and so somebody gave me my rifle and I put my helmet back on or my tar bucket back on and kind of got back in step on a day just like what the hell and I can hear the upperclassmen behind me talking through their teeth like wait till we get back woods wait till we get back and supposedly somebody told me that on the reviewing stand it might have been Palmer that like rolled his eyes when we went by and uh, and so we got to that sally port out of visual and oh my god they just lit into me like i had any you know like i had choice like i you know purposely took a knee and so that was that was west point I fell in front how about of this one from... 
Posing, posing nude on the soup's porch. Who did that? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't do very much crazy stuff, but uh, what year was that? I don't remember. It been there in Spirit Week. Actually, Doug Winton was there. There's a picture of it somewhere. I don't know where it is. Uh, but we decided we went out, you know, people streaked or whatever, but we had just our, uh, those creepy raincoats on, those, over, those long black raincoats or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it was the one where you got dressed up. It was that one that you could like flash people so we went up to the soup's porch and it was december so uh you know we all were just four of us standing on the soup's porch and a picture th- t- thankfully a little ways back so it doesn't you can't tell too much but uh yeah we are n- naked on i don't think palmer would have laughed very much had he come out you got pictures of it you got you got the uh something to prove it i there, there is a picture somewhere i honestly think it's with my stashed away with my parents uh, but thankfully, you know, back then the ca- those cameras were pretty poor quality, so I could maybe have some plausible deniability. Or like Costanza yeah. said, it was cold. Speaking of um, Army Navy Week, did did you listen to the um, podcast I did with um, our classmate Ted Ross about stealing a I Navy goat? I I did not. I did not get a chance to hear that one. So he talks about so so basically so the reason why I bring this up is just this past week they published the the incoming uh, promotional list of Brigadier General. And one of the newer Brigadier Generals is class of 92, this guy, Jim Eisenhower, who was from E4, who was part of that heist. Uh, so, based, so, so, there's, so there's three people that were involved. I mean, there was a small group of about 12 cadets that basically stole the Army goat when we were first these. Yep. Three of the 12 are general officers in the Army. So Johnny Braga, our classmate, uh, is a two-star general. Um, Omar Jones, who was at the Naval Academy, uh, who was the inside guy there, two-star general, and then Jim Eisenhower, who was uh, class of '92, also. So, pretty interesting that uh, that that of that small group, three of them are currently serving general officers in the Army. Well, I think it's awesome, and it just goes to you know, you can take big risks, and you know, you you gamble sometimes, you throw the dice, and none of us are afraid to take big risks, and a lot of us have done that. So, Brad, we're getting towards the end of the the podcast. I think we've hit on pretty much everything that we wanted to hit. Um, yeah. The one thing that we didn't we didn't talk about, we just give it. A, it's important to talk about these things because our our fallen classmates live through our memories. And so, one classmate that you had a relationship with was uh, Annie Clements. Was uh, he's in A A four. And yep. so, tell me a little bit about your experience with him. So briefly, I uh, because he was in Fourth Regiment. I got to know him. We had some classes together and started hanging out together. We went to Army uh, Navy together, road trip down there. And then we were in the same SAOBC class and so hung out. And for those of you who knew Andy, he had this distinctive laugh that was just infectious. And we'd go out to bars and stuff. And then uh, after we graduated, he went his way. And he had uh, graduated from the Naval Postgraduate School. His wife had gone on to the East Coast, and he was driving back cross-country with the dog and the car and all the other stuff. And unfortunately, in Oklahoma, a bridge had been knocked out by a barge and a flood, and, and Andy was killed uh, just randomly crossing a bridge in Oklahoma. And so, you know, when I heard that, I was like, oh, my God, are, you know, are you kidding me? And, you know, that was a, a long time ago. And as we have classmates that have passed on and, and are sick, it's just a reminder that, uh, you know, life is fragile and life is 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 beautiful and precious and not to get too cheesy, but, uh, it can be, it's fleeting, you know? And so just kind of carpe diem and, 
and as you said before, just trying to make a difference in in this world before we before we go. But that was especially sad to me. Yeah, he was actually uh, he was many of our classmates that we found on the podcast. I remembered him. He was he was a super capable, confident guy. He was actually in my Buckner squad and. You know, and uh, Mark West remembered him as well as a company mate and somebody that was always kind of looking out for people and uh, kind of always, always being a leader, always, always being thoughtful. And so um, our classmates will, our fallen classmates will will live through our stories. Um, As we kind of draw here towards towards the end, um, Brad, and uh, First of all, I want to thank you for for being a guest on this. It's been oh been man, a delight I'm excited to, to you. Yes, thank you. Yeah, we didn't we didn't expect that the timing was going to be so uh, amazingly um, uh, that the timing was we, we'd be in a situation that we're in right now with global pandemic, and here you are, emergency physician. You're seeing people every day suffering from this uh, terrible, terrible uh, coronavirus. Um, what what thoughts can you leave us with? What are what are your, uh, you know, what are your um, perspectives that you'd like to kind of share with our class? As many of our, I would just say, as many of our class, you know, perspective as many of our classmates are doing yourself and Becky and you know all of our classmates and their and their profession is just try to make you know just try to move the needle, just try to make this a, a little bit better for people uh, every day and to, you know those lessons that we got from West Point with character and, and grit, uh, we can be leaders in, in our community. And many of us, many of us are. And I just th- thanks so much for asking me to run my mouth for an hour and a half. I appreciate it. It's been fun having you and, and, and stay safe. And, and uh, thank you for your continued service to our country. Thank you for our leadership on the front lines. Um, can't think of a, of a person who today is more living up to our motto of duty shall be done than, than someone like you. So thank you for joining us tonight. That's very kind of you. Thank you. And all my classmates who listened in, thank you very much. And I will do my best to listen in to all the other ones. Great. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to wind this up. Thank you everybody who's joined us tonight. Um, yeah. Stay safe, uh, wash your hands and, uh, and, and take care of each other. Thanks again. Thanks, Jamie.